Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We are indeed expecting God to do great and powerful and mighty things in the coming weeks. And in the next 14 days, that may involve some of you. If you are watching from home or here in front of me this morning, perhaps uh, over the next 14 days you will give your life to Jesus. Or perhaps that's already happened for you. The Lord's already saved you, but you've never really declared that publicly. Jesus said anyone who comes to him must make that declaration public. If you're an introvert in particular, it may make you a little nervous to think about that prospect. But the beauty of baptism is that you have the opportunity to, in a more powerful way than anything I'm going to say in the next half hour or so, to to declare your faith in Christ and to do that publicly. In a couple of weeks, we're hoping and praying uh, that others will join those who've already told us Uh, that they would like to be baptized. Next week, we'll have our Mother's Day celebration. I'm looking forward to seeing all of you here. Moms, we look forward to just sharing some gifts with you, having some drawings, having some fun together, taking family photos together. I'm going to preach from Proverbs 31. Ladies, please do not let that divert you from or discourage you from attending. I know a lot of women read that, and then they go, I hate that passage. Well, I think at least part of the reason might be more that we're less about what it actually says and and more about the fact we may not be understanding it as we should. And my prayer is that you're going to be greatly encouraged uh, on this coming Mother's Day. So I look forward to seeing you next week. Today, we finish up a series that teaches us how to deal with deep wounds. Where two or more are gathered, sooner or later, everybody gets hurt. How do you heal from that? How do you forgive? How do you reconcile? How do those things happen? And today, we're going to ask the question, is it really worth it? Because I would imagine there are probably some people that are wondering, is it really worth it? Like, should I really go through it? Because reconciliation is difficult, isn't it? It's hard. It involves hard conversations. It involves exposing yourself emotionally to other people. It involves putting yourself out there and and describing the way in which you were hurt. It involves rejection or the risk of rejection sometimes or the risk of someone minimizing that hurt. It, It involves Uh, You being offended when someone comes to you with that. And it's just, there's so much risk involved in trying to reconcile. Why even try? Well, there was a church called Corinth that was apparently asking that same question. And this church, uh, well, to use a colloquial phrase from where I grew up, it was a hot mess. Uh, Sometimes, I know we have our issues here at Covenant. There's not a church that doesn't have its issues. There's not a church that's not troubled or even unhealthy in some ways. But when I think about Corinth, I think, man, you've got to really jack up a lot of stuff to be where this church was. These were people that would come in and see the communion table and think happy hour. These were the people that were sexually immoral in ways that would have made the cast of Jersey Shore blush, and and those kinds of sins were being ignored, they were being minimized, and yet in in the middle of all of that, with all of those issues that Paul had to address in this church, and he addresses all of them eventually, the first place he goes, the first issue that he addresses is the issue of division. He says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So this church, as I said, it was a mess, and I imagine they received this letter once they heard it read publicly, which was the general practice in the first century. For the very first time, they may have asked themselves, why bother? This seems just a little bit too hard. Maybe there are a few like that here today who go, you know what, why not just go somewhere else? Why not just distance myself from those people? I mean, Pastor, I got upset with Weiss one time, and now I shop at Food Lion. I got upset with Frontier. Don't know why he signed up with them anyway. But then I just went to Xfinity. Why can't I treat the church in that way? What's so important about the church that I should give it more attention than this? And one of the things we're going to learn is really a two, it's a twofold lesson here from this passage. The first one is this. God wants you to heal. If you've been wounded, if you've been hurt, God wants that healed. He, wants it. he doesn't want it amputated and cauterized. He wants it healed. And then the second thing that we're going to learn is a little bit more challenging, particularly if the source of that hurt has ever been a church. God wants the church to be the healthy agent of that healing. And I know that's scary for a lot of folks. Particularly if you were the victim of outright abuse in a faith community, God wants you healthy, God wants the church healthy, and the path toward that goal is how we get there together. We've got to get there together. And he gives us five ways to do that here. He begins by telling us to to celebrate the miracle of unity. This is back to chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. He says, For just as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. And that's a much wider divide than our ears often hear, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So the first thing Paul's metaphorical description teaches us here is that there is great unity and diversity, and there's great diversity in our Unity, which teaches us that unity is not uniformity. You may be listening to me, and you're not a follower of Jesus, and maybe the reason you're not is because you've met a few who are, and you think, they're kind of weird. Like, they're nice enough people, but they're weird. Do I have to be like them? No. Scripture doesn't tell us any such thing. The, The Scriptures tell us that the purpose of a follower of Jesus is not to be conformed to the image of Pastor Joel or the image of that person that you think is weird or the image of the people that were here at the 9 o'clock. Your purpose is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, obviously, there's some similarities there. You're going to hate sin more. You're going to love Jesus more. Slowly but surely, you're going to fall in love with the the Scriptures, which are the written Word of God. You're going to be more in touch with the Spirit. Your prayer life is going to improve. Your level of intimacy with God is going to improve. Those are ways in which we are the same, coming to be like Jesus. But but that's where we're all alike. But as you become like him, you're going to do it in a way that is uniquely you, which means there's diversity in our unity, right? If If you're affiliated with some affinity, you may or may not ever give that up to be a follower of Jesus. And here at Covenant, we have racially, we have black and we have white, informed by their various histories and and the shared history that we're trying to put together even right now in our collective history as a church. We have young people, we have old people, we have rich people, we have poor people. We have people who are fans of hip-hop and people who are fans of bro country, although for the life of me, I can't tell the difference between the two. But that's who we have here. 
We have college students living on ramen noodles and wealthy couples who likely, just as likely as not, might dine at the final cut in Charlestown tonight. That's who we have here. And God's design is that when people walk into our presence and they notice us and they go, look at all these different tastes, all these different ethnicities, all these different opinions, different backgrounds, different genders, different ages. What is it that brings these people together? Because you know that's the question. Sociologists talk about in-groups and out-groups, right? I'm part of a team, so I'm a Steelers fan, and some of you are tempted to hate me because of that, right? That, that's kind of how that works. That, that's the in-group. The out-group, I, I, don't, I don't understand exactly why, but supposedly I'm supposed to hate Ravens fans. I don't, but, but that, that's the out-group. The whole reason for that is because anytime we come into a group of people, we're always asking what is it that holds these people together? Because outside the church, every other corporate entity on the planet, what rallies them together is something called affinity. And affinity's not wrong. It's not wrong. Motorcycle clubs usually center around motorcycles, yeah. Book clubs around books, right? There's a common interest there. there there's, there's those kinds of things. And, and, and so that's what you rally around. Pastor Chris Eads has preached so faithfully for, in my absence so many times here. Uh, he actually, his full-time job, he works for a, a corporation called AOPA. It's an organization, a fraternity of private airplane owners. Now, I've been to his company. We always, anytime we share a meal, almost always we eat at this little greasy spoon place right next to the Frederick Airport. And Chris's office is right across the street. And I love going in there. The people are wonderful. They're nice. I've met some of his coworkers. They're wonderful. But I would never fit into that organization because I can't afford my own airplane. Right? So I came back. I want to be included. Well, I'm sorry. You can't be. And, and that should be okay. And there's a lot of groups like that. Uh, our, our brothers and sisters of color here may, or may be part of something called the NAACP. It's been around for years, designed around the advancement of them, whose collective history may place them at the disadvantage. Whatever the group, that's probably, there's probably some good qualities to it. These are not bad things. They often provide great services to their clientele, but they're all based around affinity. And what Paul is teaching us here is that unity is something very different. And he uses the analogy of the human body to make his point. And just in case you're like your pastor and you've forgotten almost everything you've ever learned in human anatomy, let me remind you of something that is the wonder of the body that you inhabit. You know, your human body has over 200 bones in it, 650 skeletal muscles, and 210 different kinds of cell types. In fact, there are so many different parts of your body, visible and invisible, so many systems in your body that tie those parts together, that work together, that, that sometimes you miss what an absolute miraculous wonder is this thing that, that Scripture describes as the crown jewel, the apex of God's created order. And you inhabit one right now, and so do I, the human body. And some of you may say, yeah, Pastor, but it's getting kind of worn out. When you say it's miraculous, I agree with you because I got out of bed this morning and somehow made it to church in spite of the fact that it hurts a lot more than it used to to get out of bed. And that's a miracle, and that's true as well. Felt like I could make it to the bathroom at, eight, at 5 a.m. without falling and getting hurt. But, but the church, when it functions appropriately, is supposed to be like a body, which means that everybody here is a part of that body. Some of you are fingers, some of you are toes, some of you are hands, some of you are biceps, some of you are eyes, some of you are kidneys, some of you are armpits. Shall I keep going? Here's the point. 
the difference between those is not the same thing as, as division. In fact, it's just the opposite. The diversity of the body, the diversity of the body is what allows us unity. Now, here's what separates us from any other kind of corporate entity. Division is always caused by diversity. I mean, why would there be division if there weren't difference? You see somebody that thinks different than you, somebody that looks different than you, someone who speaks a different language. Than you. Diversity, almost inevitably, if we are unconscious of it, it will lead to division unless Jesus is involved in it. And when the Lord Jesus is involved in this, what happens is you find unity in that diversity. So don't treat differences as though that means you can't be one. Know that in a world where nearly every other corporate setting, there's got to be some kind of affinity or we can't stay together. God's vision for his church is that the lordship of Jesus becomes a powerful rallying point that keeps us together. And that is the miracle of unity that's brought about by the gospel. It's why it's important to work toward that unity, even when it sometimes involves some very painful conversations or hard situations. It's not even primarily for that other person, although you ought to love that other person. It's primarily because Jesus is worthy of it. Jesus is worthy of our best efforts at unity, and we demonstrate that best when we celebrate the gospel miracle of unity. And then secondly, he says, you need to cherish your interdependence. He goes on in verse 15 to say, If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Now, we're going to come back to verse 18 in a minute. It, it deserves a little bit more attention than we would give it in this, in this category of verses. But let's move to verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Interdependence means, quite simply, you and I need each other. One of the reasons I love the game of football more than any other sport, and you should too, is because it's truly a team sport. It takes 11 men to win that game. Now, I don't mind basketball. Some of you guys are March Madness people. That's wonderful. That's great. I don't get as freakishly obsessed with the, with the brackets as some of you. But, but I can sit and watch a basketball game. But can we be honest? If you have someone the caliber of a Michael Jordan on your, on your team, it really doesn't matter who the other four guys are, does it? Not, not so much. But it, football, it's a little bit different. You can have Tom Brady as your quarterback, but if every, everybody on the O-line weighs less than 150 pounds, it doesn't matter who your QB is. Or if they're not doing their job, you know what's going to happen? Brady is going to eat a lot of turf. And personally, I take great pleasure in watching Tom Brady eat turf. I'm just saying. But what am I saying? It takes 11 guys. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that coaches, football coaches, they hate drama in the locker room. Because they know if there's hard feelings between teammates, that division is going to show up on the field, and it's going to affect the mission. And just like it, like it takes all 11 men to win a ball game, it takes every member of the body to concentrate on the thing that is bigger than all of us. And so that leads us to a couple of conclusions here. Number one, thank God for who he made you to be in the body. Don't say, well, I'm not a part of the body. I'll do this on my own. Maybe it would seem easier just to cut yourself off. 
But don't be like the hand and the ear in Paul's analogy here that just wishes it were some other part. Instead, honor who God made you to be as part of the body. You think about somebody who has a wounded leg or a busted knee. Maybe you, you go to the doctor and you've got a very deep, like in your lower leg, let's just say a deep wound. Let's say, let's say I'm not trying to gross you out, but let's just, let's just let's say it's all the way to the bone. What would the doctor do? What would be the easiest thing for him to do, both to make money and to save time? And he would just cut it off, right? Cut it off, cauterize it, we're done. Why is it that that's the absolute last resort of any ethical medical professional? Why is that the absolute, like, even if you went in there and said, just doc, just cut it off, I'm like, no, no, that this is not where we start on the list of priorities. Why is that? It's because he knows, he knows that two things are true if that last resort is necessary and we have to amputate. He knows, number one, the part that gets amputated dies. It dies. It can't survive without the rest of the body. All right? There's probably some folks watching me right now. Would you just put up with a little gentle pushback from your pastor right now? I love you. Some of you have been home for over a year now, and it has absolutely nothing to do with your fear of COVID. You've just gotten used to doing church in your pajamas, and you're wondering, why do I feel more disconnected from the Lord? Why does it feel like my faith is slipping? This preacher's trying to tell you why. Your family misses you, and you've, you've kind of severed yourself off from the body. You, you can't function that way. You know what else happens when you have to amputate? The rest of the body is never whole again. It'll never be the same. And it can never function. And this is one of the reasons why I think Paul uses this analogy. Because we, we don't want that. And just like any physical part of your body, you can't sever yourself from the body and stay alive. You can't be healthy. You can't, be, you can't flourish. And I know, it, it, particularly if, they're, if you're at odds with somebody else, it may seem easier or quicker. I've talked with a lot of folks who at one point found themselves at odds with another church member in, in multiple churches that I've had the opportunity to serve, and they just said, you know what, it's not worth it. Or, or they allow a past experience in which they were legitimately wounded to keep them from the blessing of the kind of interdependence that Paul speaks about here. Remember, you need the body, and the body needs you. God created us all for community in that way. And this will be a lot easier to embrace if we'll do a third thing. And this is where we back up to verse 18, and we learn that we need to accept the providence of God, and this is his plan in this. Notice, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And sometimes the hardest thing to see is the work of God, especially if there's conflict especially if there's trials, especially if things are hard, especially if things are awkward between you and another brother and another sister. I've had people ask me before, why is it that, that churches that seem to be always troubled, that have conflict in them, like you don't ever see that in, in other entities. As a matter of fact, I've, I've said this for, for a long time. You know the difference between a bar fight and a church fight? Bar fight's over in about 15 minutes or less. A church fight can last 15 years or more. Because a bar fight, it's, I mean, there's blood on the floor and there's eyes that have been put out and there's teeth missing. But you know what they're doing after about 15 minutes? Brother, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. You're like, why, does, why is it grudges get held? Everything lasts so much longer and it gets drug out. It's so just excruciatingly painful in the church. And there's a side of me that goes, maybe we need something to drink. Maybe that's what it is. 
Actually, I don't think that's what it is at all. I think part of it is recognizing that the enemy is at work. And the enemy is not interested in disrupting the local bar because the local bar doesn't possess any threat to him. Does it pose any threat to him? For the same reason that if we have an enemy abroad and they come over here to attack, they're not going to bomb a plant nursery, at least not on purpose, because it poses no threat to them. You know what they're going to find? A military base, because that's where the threat is. Recognize when there is trouble brewing within the body of Christ, the enemy is at work because he sees us as a threat. And recognize furthermore, God is at work, and he would not re- our enemy would not recognize us as a threat if the Lord were not working both above those troubles and trials and also simultaneously within the people of God. And Paul places these words right in the middle of this passage, I think, at least in part because of a solid understanding of divine sovereignty and providence. And if we'll, if we'll adopt that too, I think it'll, it'll correct a lot of thinking, and it'll actually help us to do this better. You know, churches are often worthy of critique. We, we've been worthy of that. We will be worthy of it in the future. We're not perfect people. So when someone comes with a complaint, I want to listen. I want our staff to listen. I want our pastors and our deacons to listen. Doesn't mean everybody gets what they want. Goodness gracious, there's 900 of you here. We pull out all of our hair trying to please everybody. But what it does mean is we want to listen and we want to hear patterns from various people and go, okay, maybe we should do this this way or that way. We're always about responding to that in a healthy way, as best we can. So critique can be a good thing. Criticism for the sake of criticism, whining for the sake of whining, that is one of the easiest things you can do in the world. It takes absolutely no courage to do it because there's no penalty for it, right? There's no, I mean, we can't, I don't have the legal authority to fine you for saying something ugly about the church. I can't put you in jail for it. You can't be taxed for it. But you know what? You can go just about anywhere on the internet or on television or some blog sites and find someone always slamming the church, never really contributing anything to it, but always the church should care more about the poor. The church should do more about crime. The church should do more in this area, that area. Again, not, not healthy critique, just a lot of complaints. It, it takes no courage to do that because we can't compel you to stop. There's no, there's, you're not really risking anything when you do that. And, and the truth is, again, all churches have room for improvement, but when you see a shortcoming, your choice is either to do that other thing and complain and gripe or offer a solution and a means of helping. Because if the Lord's revealed a legitimate shortcoming in your church family, or if you're watching from home and you're part of another church family, think about your own church family. He's probably given you some ability to help with it. He's given you the ability to help with it. Obviously, he's given you a passion for it. Or you wouldn't be talking about it. So, so what is it that needs to be done? And you know what the difference is between those two responses? Between just doing nothing but griping, complaining, and gossiping, and those kind of, and actually contributing a critique that would actually move us toward becoming a better body together? You know what the difference is? It's connection. It's connection. You, you get connected. But, oh, I don't know, three, four years ago, we had this gentleman come to us from another area church, and, and, and I remember he said, I, w- I want to go to lunch with, with the pastor, and I, which I don't mind doing that. And it, it gives me good opportunity to get to know people well. But, I mean, from the time we left this campus until the time we got to where we were eating, through the meal, all the way back to this campus, he was talking about his former church, and he was running it down. Complaint, 
after complaint, after complaint, after complaint, everything that was wrong with it. You know what I was thinking the whole time? I was doing a lot of thinking because I wasn't doing much talking. He was doing most of that. I was thinking, we're next. We're next. And my only question was, I wonder how long it's going to take. took six months. Six months. We got the, the email. We're going to move on. We just we don't feel like this is right. We've got all, and that was after several months of just pick, pick at this, pick at this, pick at this, pick at that. Someone who was a leader, one of our small group leaders, came to me a few weeks after that and said, hey, whatever happened to call the person's name? He said, I've been trying to reach out, but I'm not really getting anything but voicemail. There's not a lot of response. And I, I shared with that small group leader as well. He left. They just they weren't happy with some things. And he said, okay. He said, well, I guess that makes sense. I said, why? He said, that guy cornered me every single week after Sunday morning service to do nothing but complain about all the things he was finding wrong with covenant. There you go. Now you know what the question is? Wonder how long it'll be before he does it to the next one. Some people's relationship to the church is like a bad Taylor Swift song. All these guys that did her wrong, I'm like, who's going to tell Taylor? Yeah, it might be you. Right? And it's not that we can't receive critique, but it's just, it's just one of those things. And the best motivation for actually connecting is, a, is an understanding that God set the church up in this way. We're not always going to be the same. We're not always going to have the same opinions about things. That's the realization that helps you conclude. You know what? I'm a part of this family, and it's probably time that I stop complaining that the kitchen's dirty and start washing some dishes. Start putting things to work. Start leading out in a way that's going to make the body better. You need an understanding of providence to come to that conclusion. And then you'll learn to appreciate each other. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, the ones that we cover up because we want to be modest and we want to honor the Lord in that, are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Here, here's the other pitfall that prevents healing. Reconciliation, unity. It's a lack of appreciation for people that aren't like you. Eventually, that's going to lead to a feeling, well, I, don't, I don't really need them. That the church doesn't really need them. And, and if that feeling is not crucified, it will lead to a church where everybody is exactly alike. You get the first church of the Stepford Wives, right? Everybody is exactly the same. Everybody thinks the same way. Everybody looks the same way. Everybody votes the same way. Everybody, and it's not, church then becomes nothing but an echo chamber. Let me tell you something about that kind of environment. Number one, it is very comfortable. Very comfortable because nobody's ever going to push on you. Nobody's ever going to challenge you. Every idea is just an echo, it's in an echo chamber. You just get affirmed in everything. Let me tell you something else about that environment. There is no better or more effective environment to stunt your spiritual growth than a monolithic congregation where everyone is exactly alike. And so Paul reminds us here, this attitude is like parts of the body turning on each other. I mean, you think about that. If your right hand declared war on your head, who wins that fight exactly? 
if my left finger decided to declare war on my left eye, you're like, I won. Won what? You're blind on your left side right now. Nobody wins those fights. That helps nobody. When there are factions in the church that turn on each other like that, everybody loses. And that, that, that reality is identical, actually, to the kind of scenario Paul is describing here. You need me, but not them. You, those other people, we don't need those other people. That's the body declaring war on itself. I saw a very graphic and ugly picture of that this last fall. For about five years or so, just before her death in October, I watched my mother lose control of her faculties. This is a woman who used to set up family reunions and knew everybody. I mean, all the layers of the family. She called me on occasion and said, you know, you know so-and-so? No, mom, I really don't. Well, you should. He's your third cousin once removed, married to so-and-so. You know so-and-so, right? No, mom. I really, everybody's got somebody like that in your family, right? You know, they just know everybody, right? And they're just, and, and the more she kept going, I'm like, mom, I have no idea who you're talking about. I just don't know. I used to find those conversations annoying, and now I kind of miss them. She lost her memory of who a lot of those people were. She lost her ability to cook. She lost her ability to write her own name. Eventually, it got to a place where dad had to bring in healthcare professionals into the home. She grew paranoid and accused my father of having an affair with the nurses. Eventually, she was placed in a safe place, but it saddened us to put her there as, as her mind continued to deteriorate. And ultimately, her brain told her body to stop eating. And she died of malnutrition. And every bit of that happened to my mother because there was this horrible disease she had. And you know what it was doing? It was teaching her brain to work against her body rather than to help it. When the body turns against itself, the results are ugly. And Paul's using that same analogy here in a graphic way to warn the Corinthians against this posture that says, I have no need of you, dismissing other people, marginalizing other people over differences. It's not just sinful. It's absurd. And just in case I'm not being abundantly clear, we need you. I need you if you're a part of this family. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to think church is just this weekend event and the important people are the ones with the spotlight and the microphone. You know that's not true if you've listened to me longer than 15 minutes. Those of you that have come to Covenant in the last year, really the last three years or so, ever since I started teaching Discover Mission, you've heard me say that over and over. And, and if you've been here a while, longer than three or four years, you should probably join us for one of those sessions. It might do you good to hear where we are now and who we are now and where we're headed. And just join us one month. We'll feed you, keep your kids. Not everything is going to be as visible, though. you got to find your place here, right? So you can't be a finger saying, I have no need of the hand. Of course you have need of the hand. You can't be a kidney saying, I have no need of the visible parts because you're jealous of them. Some of us are more visible than others. Some of us are more prominent. Some of us get more attention. That doesn't make us more important, Okay. Some functions and some gifts and all these things that Paul is going to later talk about in, in later chapters in 1 Corinthians, they're absolutely necessary even if they're not noticeable. That's why your butt's in the back. Because even you don't want to look at that. Right? You've got to cover that up. But you, you, you kind of need your butt, don't you? For a lot of things, it's, it's really important. Even that which is invisible is visible to Jesus. We need each other. and We need more and more to appreciate each other. And this, this last thing, 
is probably the most important reason why. It's because God has called us together to suffer with each other. Verse 25, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's why unity is important. It's because we can't face everything life throws at us alone. It's why we've got to push through the small stuff, even if it causes us some, some pain, even if it causes us to have to participate in some hard conversations. That re- reconciliation is necessary because above all the drama and all the stuff, this is to God stuff that people deal with. And the church family needs to be healthy and unified so that we can deal with that with each other. You ever sustained an an injury to one part of your body only to recognize that it wasn't just that part of your body that was affected by that injury? You ever hit your thumb with a hammer? It doesn't just stop right here, does it? I mean, this thing feels like it's this big, but it doesn't. It just radiates through your arm, gets into your torso, makes you jiggle a little bit. If you hit it hard enough, it's going to get into your feet, make you dance a little jig. It's going to get into your eyes, and you're going to cry involuntarily. Some words are going to come out of your mouth that may not be a normal part of your vocabulary. One part gets injured. It starts to affect the other parts. And church not only is, but it should be the same way. When one of us gets hurt, we all hurt. I lost my mother in October, and I had a church family that grieved with me. And you have no idea what an enormous blessing that was to me. And in the future, there will be more hurt. It might be me, it might be you, but somebody's going to have a miscarriage. Somebody's going to lose a job. Somebody's going to lose a loved one. Someone is going to be diagnosed with cancer. Someone's spouse is going to abandon them. Someone's children is going to turn their back on God. And when those things happen, we ought to feel that together. We ought to suffer through that together. Never saying, that's not really my problem. Yes, it's your problem and mine, because this is our family. Here's the thing. Unity is necessary in order to do that. So if you're, if you're at odds with somebody else, it's just awkward, isn't it? If one of you suffers, it's hard to suffer alongside of them. If you don't find a way to reconcile, how are you going to comfort each other when the real suffering comes? I think about that gentleman that I referred to earlier. He had children. What, what about a scenario in which his children turn their backs on the Lord or his children develop a chronic illness or end up in the hospital and then I get a call because they need my help? You know, if he was doing all that talking to me about another church and all that talking and gossiping and stuff to some of our small group leaders about us and he continues to do those kinds of things, I, I, I can guarantee you it's also happening at his dinner table with his kids there. Who are his kids going to trust? Their father or somebody they only see about once a week that their father talks trash about? Same thing with you. If all that division is just ratcheted up, you know what happens when tragedy strikes? We're unable to be there for each other, at least in the fullest sense. Not that I wouldn't respond. Of course I would. But this is one of the reasons he's calling for unity. How can you give them all they should when their loved one dies? How will they suffer with you if you become chronically ill? We reconcile, we pursue unity because we need each other when it's time to suffer. Don't you want to be there for others when you're needed? 
Don't you want others to be there for you when you need them? We do the hard work of healing deep wounds because God has called us to suffer together. And, and you can't come to the rescue when there's a lack of willingness to reconcile. You're willingly bleeding out yourself. God's called us to suffer together. Uh, here's the kind of the summary of this. The church, our church, can sometimes be a hot mess. You guys have been here longer than me, know better than me that that is the case. And the differences, what Paul is telling us here is that those are simply the tools that help us learn unity. And when we do learn that unity, we realize how much we complement each other. Because the alternative is, is to generalize. Let, let me tell you the truth here. The church has never hurt anybody. Never. You know why? Because the church doesn't exist in a way that can bring tangible hurt. Now, there may be a church that brings hurt, especially if it's toxic. Even a person who's in a healthy church who is a toxic person can cause a lot of hurt. And when you become the target of that kind of hurt, you know what your enemy wants you to do? He wants you to generalize. He wants you to see that abusive pastor and miss the 1,000 faithful, devoted men of God who could stand in that guy's place. He wants you to mentally mark those hurtful experiences, hurtful congregation, and completely forget about thousands of churches all around the world that are bringing healing. Philosophers call this the fallacy of composition, inferring that something must be true of the whole because by my own experience, I've seen it be true of the parts. So you know how that comes out? They're all that way. This is what, this is what media has taught us to do. Liberals are all that way. Conservatives are all this way. Our culture has been trained in this. You want to know why we're divided like this? Because we can't think. Because we can't use nuanced language. Because we see a tribe before the image of God. And when that kind of stuff's brought into the church, it can be very, very damaging. But at the end of the day, the truth is simple. Churches are full of sinners. Imperfect people who sin against each other. What brings us together makes us the most powerful force for healing and reconciliation in the world is the gospel that addresses my sin, absorbs it in a substitute, and sanctifies me, not only in my relationship with God, but through my relationships with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And God intends for that reconciliation to start with us and even, even within us. And for some of you, there really can't yet be reconciliation with other people in the church because there hasn't yet been reconciliation with God. Maybe you've been a member of the church for a long time, but you've never truly turned from your sins, given your life over to Jesus, put your faith in his death and his resurrection for your sin. The scriptures tell us that you were created in the image and likeness of the God who formed you and who fashioned you. You have infinite worth and value, inherent dignity. Uh, that same Bible also tells us that because of the sin curse, you inherited a sin nature that as soon as you were volitionally able caused you to rebel against your creator, to sin against him. And the Bible furthermore tells us that the penalty for that, the inflexible penalty for sinning against the holy God is death separation from him. And then the Bible finally tells us that Jesus came so that you and I would not have to suffer that fate. And if you've not believed on Jesus yet, you can't truly, fully, finally reconcile with brothers and sisters because you haven't yet reconciled with your creator. But God gives you that opportunity today.
to turn away from your sins, put your faith in Jesus, to come to him, have your sins forgiven, be reconciled to God, and have the overflow of that reconciliation affect every significant relationship in your life. Will you come to him today? Heavenly Father, thank you for these very practical lessons that we've been learning from your word. Thank you for your people. And I pray today, Lord, that if anyone is listening to me who has not yet come to know Jesus, Lord, would you convict them by your spirit? Would you draw them to the foot of the cross? And Lord, may we, may we add them uh, to a list of folks who will declare their faith publicly here in just a couple of weeks. Father, we just pray for that reconciliation to happen and for the overflow of that, Lord, uh, including those who have already believed uh, to be actuated, initiated, and that it would result in genuine reconciliation. Father, thank you for this opportunity. May we be obedient to you in these next few moments. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.